Oh God in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of gathering as your saints, uh, for the privilege of knowing that our Savior Jesus Christ has gone before us and intercedes for us in heavenly places. And so we come in his name with strong confidence. You tell us in your word that you will give us whatever we need as we ask it in the name of Christ. So Lord, I I confess that we're a people whose hearts have often been pulled by lesser things. Christmas and this season reminds us that all those things always disappoint us. It always leaves us empty. Father, we must only find our life in you. And so I pray today that you would be with those who are grieving in any sense from spiritual or emotional distress, any sort of sadness or sorrow of heart where we, your people, might have placed undue weight on things that cannot satisfy us. Would you meet us in those places and fix our eyes upon you, the giver of life and Jesus Christ, the Savior. I pray also today that you will be with those who are sick. Some are recovering from seasonal illnesses. Some have other long-term illnesses that they're at home recovering from. Specifically, we want to pray for Peter Doyle today. He is in the hospital, and we ask that you will strengthen his body where it is weak, that you will uphold him and take care of Sally Ann as well, that you will cause his body to be physically renewed in strength. Lord God, there's others who are at home with various sicknesses this time of year, and we pray that you would meet each of them that you would minister to them and make them well. But Lord, we also pray that in the midst of every trial, you would make us a people who look to you. That you'd make us a people who, with patience, through faith, persevere while we wait upon you. Lord, we all encounter various trials of every kind. And we ask that you would help us to see these not as crushing blows from a heavy-handed father, but as gentle blessings to shape us so that we might learn more faithfully to trust you, even when we can't see the way ahead. Lord, we pray for the various ministries that minister on Auburn's campus. We pray for our friends at RUF and RUF International for Campus Outreach International, for Navigators and Onward. We pray for Christian Medical and Dental Association that ministers to medical students at VCOM. We pray for each of these student ministries that you would use them to open your word and to share the gospel and that students might be drawn to Christ and to his church Would you use this congregation in any way you desire to that end? Lord, you tell us also to pray for those who rule and govern over us. And so we pray specifically for our local leaders, the mayors of Auburn and Opelika, the governor of the state of Alabama, the president of the United States. And we pray 
that you will be with each person, whether elected or appointed in this nation. We ask, Father, that you would give them a sense, a very clear sense of ruling under your authority, that you would increase their understanding of biblical justice and good. We pray, Father, that you would protect the weakest in our societies, those who don't have a voice for themselves. We pray, Father, that you would do good for those in need. Oh, Lord, use your church and your people to that end, we pray. And now, Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would quiet our hearts and our minds so that we might hear it for what it is, your word given as spiritual nourishment to your people. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. If you'll take your Bibles, we'll turn to Exodus chapter 7 this morning. Exodus 7, and while you turn there with me, I want to pause briefly and just simply uh, say thank you to this congregation. I, I don't really know how it happens every year, uh, but around Christmas, the, the Zellners receive a very kind gift, uh, money from the congregation that's been collected, and I, I just want to begin by saying Thank you for that. Uh, it's a huge blessing, uh, and it's always overwhelming uh, to us, frankly, for your kindness. Secondly, I want to I thank you for the time that I've had off. I didn't do a great job in 2021 of, of spreading out my time off, uh, and so the elders were kind to let me push it together there at the end of the year, and so I want to thank you for that. Uh, 2021, if you can have a favorite year in ministry, it was probably my favorite year in ministry. Not that you enter pastoral ministry in order to be fulfilled. You, you enter it in order to fulfill the work that God's called us to, but I can honestly say it's an extreme joy to minister here. Uh, we absolutely love it, and we, Susan and I love each of you, and we're so grateful for you. I want to also uh, thank the deacons and the elders for the specific works that they do. Uh, their service to this congregation. And then more than that, I want to thank each of you for pitching in and helping wherever you see needs. Uh, you are a people in this congregation who really do uh, serve the Lord in worship and work to the best of your ability. And it's really evident to me, and I'm incredibly thankful. Uh, so we love you, and we're really thankful uh, for you as a congregation. So I'll ask you again to return to Exodus 7. You hadn't been there probably since December 5th. That's where we were last time. And in that study, it's, it's right before the start of these biblical plagues that God intends to drop on the people of Egypt. But before he did, he gave one final warning. In a sense to say, Pharaoh, make sure that your heart is tender and that you listen to me. God foretold that Pharaoh's heart would be hard and he wouldn't listen. And so Pharaoh's heart serves kind of like the opposite of your heart. You belong to Christ. God has thereby made your heart tender. And so there's a sense in which the passage is saying, do not be like Pharaoh. Be tender to God's word when the Lord speaks. And so when you come to Exodus chapter 7, verse 14, we'll read through the end of the chapter. This is God's word speaking. God's very voice. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that's in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish of the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of the servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile died. Excuse me, all the water in the Nile turned to blood, and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Here's God's word. Let's ask for his help in the ministry of his spirit. Lord in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would grant to us the ears to hear, so that as your spirit ministers to us through the preaching of your word, we might know you more fully, and we might understand your word, and also by that same spirit, apply it to our lives. We pray, Father, that you would see fit to use a wretched, sinful, crooked stick like me to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we study the plagues that God used to strike the people of Egypt, I want you to use this rubric to think through what is happening. Each of the plagues is really a pointed blow from the finger of the one true God to the individual gods of Egypt. And as we walk through these, you notice that as God places his finger on these specific false gods, sometimes it's the same false gods, he also might be placing his finger on your false gods, where we worship gods that are very much like him. That seems stupid to sophisticated people like us to, to trust in false gods, little statues or idols, but what you find when you pull back the layers is we do quite the same. The Egyptians worshipped hundreds of false gods. Some were gods of creation, like the Nile, and some were little concepts. uh, And they made those concepts into statues to worship, similar to what Paul addresses at the Areopagus, uh, a statue to an unknown 
God. People just carved out little wood and stone and they set them around their house. Now, when you read the Old Testament, it is tempting to be surprised by the silliness, the, the silliness of worshiping wood and stone. But these plagues are really here as a kind of warning to everyone, not just the people of Egypt, not just the Hebrew people, but you. As you watch the Lord place his finger on the idols, it's my prayer that the Lord would also show you that he is placing his finger on your idols and mine. When we talk about idols, we talk about false gods, your first, first thought might be these little statues or it might be a, a rising pop star or something like an American idol. But you see, when God talks about idols, he's talking about our tendency to do what one pastor said, and that is to take good things like a, a career or love or material possessions or a family and turn it into an ultimate thing. In that sense, to, to deify something, to twist it and make it the central part of our lives in hopes that these idols will give to us significance or fulfillment or security. As we study the plagues in Egypt, we want to ask, am I worshiping some false god, that same idol in a different way, but in a similar sense? And if God places his finger on it, if he points it out to you, are you willing then to, to say, Lord, I, I want it done away with, I want to repent? So the Egyptians worshiped the Nile as if it was the source of life. It was one of their idols. What are the idols of your heart? What are the things that you worship as though it is the giver of your life? God proves in Exodus 7 himself to be the only source of life. And so the passage is going to break down in three ways. We'll talk about first the confrontation and then secondly the consequences. Thirdly, the consideration. We start with the confrontation. It's in verse 14 that God tells us what has already become obvious to us as readers. It's repeating verse 3 and verse 13. And that is that Pharaoh's heart is hard towards God and his word, and he's not going to listen. And so God arranges a very pointed confrontation in verse 15. Take a look at it. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. It is bold. Intentionally so, because the last time we came to the banks of the Nile River, Moses' older sister stepped out from the reeds in boldness. It, the Bible says she took her stand, chapter 2, verse 3, and the word is identical here to tell us that Moses must likewise take his stand before the most powerful man in the known world on the banks of the Nile, a man who is trusting in the Nile River himself. And he is to stand there and do the same as his older sister did in this case and in that case. They're both a stand for the sake of salvation. Moses, you stand there and be unawed by the earthly majesty of this king. And then what happens in the text, you notice 
that the lines between Moses' voice and God's voice begin to be blurred so that Pharaoh gets the sense very deliberately, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews is talking. You should listen. Now, the boldness of this confrontation is highlighted when you understand Pharaoh's pattern. Is Pharaoh going down to the river to take a bath? Is Pharaoh going down to the river to practice the backstroke? No. Pharaoh goes down to the river every morning. God wasn't predicting, I think it's a chance that Pharaoh might go down to the river. You see, this is what he does every single day. Scholars tell us he goes down to the water's edge there to worship his God, to pay homage to the gods of the Nile. Because that river is the source of of life. It's the source of existence for him and for his people. And so in Pharaoh's mind, if he wants things to go well in Egypt, if he wants things to go well for himself, it depends on, on giving himself in worship to a God like Happy. H A P I, the God of the flood. He's the one who supposedly carries that rich alluvial soil into the Nile Basin. And every spring we have brand new sources of rich, beautiful soil. You'll find it humorous to know that Happy is depicted like a hermaphrodite. Happy is is pictured in statue form like a man with a long gray beard, but a pregnant belly and breasts. Because he, she gives us life. Maybe he's down at the river to worship the God called Nu, the the guardian of the Nile, the one who who causes everything in the river to live. There's another Nile God that they worshipped named Osiris. We don't know which of the gods he's down there to worship. At the end of the day, Pharaoh is worshipping the Nile The Nile is his God. He trusts it to provide everything that he needs for his land. And so the relationship between Pharaoh and the Nile River determines everything in his life and how everything is going. That's why God says, Moses, you go down there and you stand in front of Pharaoh as he's about to worship his idol and you speak my words to him. I'm going to place my finger right on the false gods that the Egyptians worship. And I'm going to make it clear that I am Yahweh, the only true God. The first plague, and then every plague that follows, is a confrontation between the true God and the false gods that the Egyptians worshipped. And the text provides us two reasons for why God confronts Pharaoh. Look at verse 16. That's the first one. That my people may serve me. The second reason is in verse 17, that you will know that there is only one God and his name is Yahweh. It's ultimately about God's glory. And if God's people are going to know and serve God rightly, we have to recognize and see the idols which stand in the way. That's why we read the Westminster Shorter Catechism question one this morning. Since God is the only true God, 
It is always man's highest and only purpose to glorify this God and to enjoy Him eternally. A confrontation between the true God and the gods of the Nile is, is an obvious confrontation. But you begin to apply it when you begin to peel back what the, the, the Nile represents for these people. And here it seems that you begin to see the Lord's finger sitting on our own false gods as well, our own idols. I mean, the river is the economic backbone for the people of Egypt. One pastor said that they worship the Nile, and there's many people in our culture who worship the NASDAQ or worship the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones Industrial Average. More than that, I mean, the Nile is is their transportation system. The Nile is their irrigation system. The Nile is their water supply. The Nile is their food supply. And so to begin to apply it, you think about what would happen if my income was suddenly cut off? Would my heart very quickly have a a reflex action of, of, Lord, I, I believe you're in this. I see you here. I'm thankful for you. I know that ultimately you're the true giver of everything. Or would your reflex... The anxiety, fear, anger, or maybe you just come unglued. I'm going to lose it. If you can't get where you need to go, you go out to your car, you, you turn the key and it doesn't crank. Or you sit in an airport for hours and hours and your transportation doesn't work? Do you see it as an opportunity to trust the Lord? Or is your first thought bitterness towards God? Why are you letting this happen to me, Lord? I watched as my own idol was laid bare this last week in the Denver airport. Have you grown accustomed to some extraordinary conveniences? And are those conveniences the very things that make life worth living? Do you think about them in some ways as as the source of life or as the things that are ultimate? How easy it is to deify our comforts, to, to just twist them into the things that make life worth living? I wonder if the Lord's finger is on your idols. Maybe your idols are comfort. Maybe people or positions or status or finance. What is it in your life that makes you feel secure? If the Lord was to cause you to lose it, would you still believe that God is faithful? What is it that makes you feel significant? If you lost it, would you still know that your significance is bound up in God's love for you through Jesus Christ? Would that even be enough? Would that matter? What makes you feel fulfilled? If the Lord was to remove that thing, would you still be fulfilled in Christ as the lasting source of true fulfillment? You see, your ability... Or your lack of ability to worship and glorify and enjoy God when these idols are shaken 
is a clue as to whether you're trusting in the Lord or trusting in these false gods of the world. One final comment I want to make about this confrontation. We generally call these the ten plagues of Egypt. Uh, That's not a word that's in the text. The word in the text is found in verse 17. The Lord says, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that's in my hand, I will strike the water that's in the Nile, and it shall be turned to blood. Uh, These aren't plagues. These are blows. The Lord will strike. That's His word. And so the confrontation is so that you and I might know that He's the one true God and be free to serve Him more fully. Consequently, God will strike the Egyptians in the very place that they will feel it most acutely. The Nile is the perfect place to start. But you see, on them, it is an act of judgment. If you belong to Jesus Christ by faith today, God's strike is not a strike of judgment. Because the Bible tells us that the Lord has already struck His own Son, Jesus Christ. And and, and through His striking, God has made Himself known to you. And He's freed you so that you might worship and serve Him. But it's not beyond His willingness to strike with a loving blow. Perhaps He'd strike your idols in a way that you might feel them most acutely. But in that sense, it wouldn't be for judgment, would it? It would be so that you and I could continue to to know Him as the only true God, so that we might be increasingly freed to worship and serve Him. In that sense, His strike is really a blow of, of blessing. It's His finger pointing out the idols of your heart. God proves Himself the only source of life. We've seen the confrontation. Now let's examine the consequences. And what really follows in the text is the the consequence of Pharaoh's sin and stubborn unbelief. It's two strikes, but it's the same plague. Look at verse 18. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. That's what that first action of Moses' staff accomplished. But then there's a second strike as part of the same blow. Verse 19, the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. And so first strike, the Nile becomes blood. Critical scholars read this passage and they come up with fanciful ways to explain this as a natural phenomenon. There was a flood, happened real quickly, clay pours down and and makes the water look red like blood and nobody could drink it. Or maybe there was a sudden overflow of red algae. It's a normal phenomenon, but nobody could drink the water. But you see, if it was a normal phenomenon, the Egyptians wouldn't be scrambling and freaking out trying to get water. If it was normal, it's going to pass. More than that, you'd have to explain why it is everywhere in every canal and pot. 
The Bible really says it is actual blood. The only word that it uses is to describe true blood. And then the second strike is Aaron's staff. As he waves it in every direction around Egypt and all the water everywhere becomes blood. The Bible uses the word all so that you and I become overwhelmed with how gross and bloody and smelly it has become. Blood is everywhere. Which raises an interesting question, doesn't it? What about the Hebrew people? Did they have water? The Bible here tells us that the Egyptians had blood instead of water. The Egyptians had blood instead of water, but the text quite deliberately ignores the Hebrew people. And what we find from later reading is a conclusion that's very logical. The Lord treats the people of Egypt very differently than He treats the people, the Hebrew people. And so that which He strikes the Egyptians with, He spares the Hebrews with. How much blood? Your English translation concludes verse 19 with this. It says, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Uh, the word vessels is not in the original language. It's supplied by translators because that's what they believe is happening. You and I are thinking about bowls and cups of water. But this is more likely... a. a a reference to the little idols of of wood and stone that the people had around their house. In fact, in the Old Testament, when you encounter this phrase, vessels of wood or stone, it's almost always a reference to idols. Now, those who study Egyptian paganism tell us that it was the practice for those who held these little idols in their home to take water each morning and polish up their idols to make sure that they were presentable and clean. Not too different from the way you and I treat our idols. We polish them up to make them presentable. That which is ugly, we try to give it a a clean appearance. We polish our greed and we call it motivation. We polish our materialism. And we say, well, that's, that's what success looks like. We justify our false gods in our minds so that they look presentable to those who ask about them. Perhaps the point of the passage is that even the little water that folks used in their homes for these pagan rituals turned into blood. And so instead of getting to polish up their little idols, their idols end up bathed in blood, poured over with death. So verse 20 and 21 restate the consequences of Pharaoh's hardness of heart. There's there's blood throughout the whole land of Egypt. And with this blow, God makes his point. The consequences of sin is death. He'll point this out again over the next several chapters, but do not miss the little idols that folks worshipped and their bathing in blood. Because Pharaoh and his people worship the Nile. Pharaoh and his people treasure the Nile as as life. And now everything that they saw as a source of life and existence has been touched so that it stinks of death. God's able to do that. He's able to touch 
the very things that you treasure as life to show that these are impotent gods. Is your success your life? God's able to touch that to show that it is a powerless God. Is your accomplishment your life? Is your comfort your life? Your health? Your reputation? Is your family your life? Are your future plans your source of, of life? Maybe it's your children or your grandchildren or your girlfriend or boyfriend, your, the thing that makes life worth living. Maybe financial security is the one thing that you think gives you life. Notice, friends, we aren't talking about things that are bad. We're talking about things that we are tempted to deify. To try to strangle life out of God's good gifts. One of the consequences of of, of squeezing these idols and, and trying to get life out of them is they invariably die in your hands. Maybe it's time to go ahead and bathe your idols in blood. Not the way the Egyptians were bathing them in blood. That's death. You've already been doing that. Maybe it's time to go ahead and bathe your idols in the cleansing blood of Christ. So that your idols would be washed from your heart. And once they are washed from your heart, your eyes are are clear to see that they are only good gifts given to you from God, who himself is the source of true life. More than that, when your eyes are clear, you begin to open your hands and hold God's gifts with, with open hands and a kind of gratitude for the one who gave them to you in the first place. Verses 20 and 21 proclaim the consequences of Pharaoh's hardness of heart. There's blood throughout all the land of Egypt. And so with this blow, God makes his point very clearly. The consequences of sin is always death. But, but, but God proves himself the only source of life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you have the confrontation and you have the consequences. Our passage ends with a consideration. This first blow leaves the people with, excuse me, leaves you and me with the exact same consideration that the Hebrew people had to contend. And that is that there are two ways to go. You can make matters worse. You can be stubborn and refuse to listen to the Lord. The chapter ends with a kind of stubborn refusal. Remember, blood everywhere. Or you can listen. Take a look at verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So this stubborn king summons his weak magicians, and they decide instead to return not to the power of God, but to the power of Satan in hopes that they can make life work out for themselves on their own terms. No one has power over God in this passage. You'd imagine, wouldn't you, with, with blood in the Nile and rivers that stink of dead fish and blood in every tributary and every storage pot, that if Satan had any real power, this would be a great time to reverse what the Lord had done. 
but he can't. All he can do is imitate God. Some magician comes running in before Pharaoh. He brings his little mason jar, the last little remnants of water that we got, and he says, hey, watch this. And instead of making more life-producing water, he turns it to blood. And here you see, of course, the way that the Lord uses Satan's power for his own purposes. More blood, more death, more summons to repent, but for a stubborn heart that's bent on independence from the living God, that's really all the proof that Pharaoh needed. Look at verse 23. Pharaoh turned, went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. And so the chapter ends with this pathetic picture, a picture that lasts for seven full days. The gods of the Nile ultimately fail to deliver what their worshipers hope. People of Egypt end up in the exact same place that everyone ends up when they worship false gods. Disappointed, empty, thirsty, scrambling, digging to try to make life work somehow apart from the living God. Now, the consideration is obvious. A life humbled or a life hardened. A life tender towards God's word or deaf to his voice. And so Exodus 7 is really one coin with two different sides. One side says there is grace and mercy, and the other side says there is judgment like on Pharaoh that is potentially coming for those who will not heed this warning and take it to heart. There are two places in the Bible beyond this where we have water to blood pictures, and those two two occasions are here for your consideration. The first is when Jesus is at a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And your Savior turns ordinary water to the best wine. And he will later say that wine represents his blood poured out, not in rivers, but over his people to save them from their sins. And later, he takes that same image and he institutes a sacramental feast. Blood, my blood poured out to wash away your sins. And it's presented as a picture of red wine. And that feast is a promise, again, of a greater feast, another feast in paradise. More wine, more feasting, more joy in life from the one true God. Here's a God of grace and mercy who is offered to sinners on this side of the coin. When you turn the coin over, you remember that there's another blood picture in the Bible, one where water is turned to blood. It's a terrifying picture. It's found in Revelation chapter 16, where this series of bowls is poured out, representing God's wrath on those who refuse to repent and come running to Christ. It's Revelation 16.3. God shows the apostle John, this is what my wrath will be like when it is poured out on evil, on those who hated my son, Jesus Christ. Here's what it says. 
The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets and you have given them blood to drink it's what they deserve and then i heard a voice from the altar saying the altar the place where jesus is sacrificed from that altar it says yes lord god the almighty true and just are your judgments it's an image drawn from this first plague in Egypt to make sure that you know that here is a God of grace and mercy. And when you flip the coin over, he is a God who must do justly. Exodus 7 is in that way a foretaste of God's wrath where he will pour out his judgment on the hard-hearted. He cannot let the guilty go unpunished. Friends, that day, that Revelation 16 day has not yet come, and we praise God for that today. Today, the gates of God's mercy and grace are wide open for you. And here is a Savior who is offered for your consideration, the God who proves himself to be the only source of life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Come, run quickly to the king. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the beauty pictured here. We thank you for both sides of this coin. That you are a God of grace and mercy. But you are also a God who will not let the guilty, those who spurn your son, go unpunished. Uh, All this is written for your glory, for the good of your people. We pray that you would bind your word to our hearts, that we might know you and love you and find our life in you. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.